Welcome to the Fabulous 413. I'm Khalees Smith. And I'm Monty Belmonte. Later in the show, McGoverning with McGovern. Congressman Jim McGovern on how it looks like the U.S. will narrowly avoid defaulting on our loans and on why he voted no on the bill that may keep us from defaulting. But first... W-E-L-O-V-E 108 FM Springfield's own Ruthie Carter is a costume designer for film and television, best known for her work with directors Spike Lee, John Singleton, and Ryan Coogler. Ms. Carter won two Oscars for costume design for Black Panther and Wakanda Forever, making history as the first African-American in that category, and also made history for being the first African-American woman to win multiple Oscars in any category. A four-time Academy Award nominee, also for Malcolm X and Steven Spielberg's Amistad, she has 50 feature film credits, including Crooklyn and, oh my gosh, Shaft, Yeah, we decided. Black, I basketball. think it'd be fun to bounce off our, our favorites from your Wikipedia slash IMDb page. I mean, this School list days, is insane. Mo Better Blues, Do the Right Thing, Jungle Fever, Malcolm X. Of Dolomite course, is my name, personal from, favorite. <laughs> I love that more recent one with their Eddie Murphy. Uh, Coming to America, Doing Chirac. The new Blade. <laughs> yeah, The New Blade. I want to ask all about this, but I don't want to get you in trouble with the Marvel people, Disney people, because I know how uh, they can be. But thank you so yeah, much. Like the CIA. Right. <laughs> Thank right. you so much for joining us, Ms. Ruthie Carter. Um, Thank you. That was a great introduction. It even made me think, like, who is that that did all that? <laughs> oh, wait a minute. That's me. Right. Would the Ruthie Carter that was growing up in Springfield in the neighborhoods that we're in right now recognize that person? Yeah, only if you call her Ruthie. Ah. See, that's where the the E is for Elaine, Ruth Elaine Carter. But I grew up in Springfield as Ruthie. So all of my family and friends from my uh, youth uh, know me as Ruthie. And That's the, cool. And the world still knows you as Ruth E, which is kind of a nice progression <laughs> there. <laughs> yeah, it is. Which neighborhood in Springfield did you grow up in? Because I just, I'm a I, transplant. I just moved to McKnight. Ah, yeah. Um, Winchester Square, uh, AIC College, mm-hmm. uh, Batova Gym, right over there. Yeah. Uh, Amor Village is where my mom's house still is. And, you know, that was my name or that was my neighborhood. You know, Amor means love. I love it. And you got a, a big boost in the career direction that you are now in and the best in the game at frankly, as far as I'm concerned, through the Springfield Boys and Girls Club and the sewing machine they had there? Is that a true story? Well, it's uh, somewhat true. The Boys and Girls Club, uh, I took my first like sewing class, you know, Mm -hmm. and uh, I didn't know that you were supposed to pin down those little tissue paper patterns. And so I was, you know, trying to keep that tissues, you know, centered there on the fabric as I cut around it. Uh, it was really hard, but that's where I learned that you have to pin down the pattern. <laughs> um, and the sewing machine was in my bedroom. Oh. I, you know, you know, legacy of uh, families, especially African-American families, but many families of all cultures grow up with a sewing machine, especially if you were one of modest means, a family of modest means had a sewing machine in the house. And if you couldn't afford to buy it, you, you'd you have to make it. So I had that sewing machine in my room, but it looked like a desk. It was a big wooden desk with drawers. And one day I I lifted the leaflet and out came a black 
sewing machine. And um, I thought, wow, let me, let me, let me look into this now and, and, you know, learn how to sew. So I kind of taught myself how to sew. And it was more for me, uh, repurposing before it was called repurposing, Mm -hmm. Uh, like going into the attic and finding old jeans and making long maxi skirts and, you know, changing stuff around to suit my uh, my style, I guess. So most of the time, I didn't want to wear anything I made. I um, I just like the the creating of the of the garment, you know. And I'd give them away. And I hope some of those people still have those things. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. How did you segue from doing that into doing costuming? Well, the segue was interesting. Okay, so I wasn't thinking like, ooh, this is something I want to do when I go to college or anything. I was in theater arts from programs, summer programs in Massachusetts at Amherst College and UMass. I was in Upward Bound. I was also in a program called Uhuru Sasa, and that was at Amherst College. And I grew an appreciation for the arts from those programs, and I was acting. So acting was a thing that I wanted to do, but I didn't think it was a a field you could actually, you know, pursue. So when I went to college, I majored in special education. And was that at Springfield Technical Community College or... No, my mother went to Springfield oh, Technical okay. Community College. <laughs> I went to Hampton, Hampton University in Virginia. Yeah. I went to HBCU, yeah. And, uh, I, you know, I come from, like, you know, a legacy of families that hail teaching, the teaching profession and nursing. And those were the professions that we were uh, entering the most as, you know, black people that uh, has the history goes, you know, we would form schools and all that. My mother remembered, you know, her family having a school when she grew up and she said she hated it because it had a dirt floor, you know. And uh, so when you think of the Jim Crow South, you can think of that there were teachers and nurses for uh, segregation. Mm. So my mother uh, really wanted me to become a teacher and I was interested in theater for the deaf. And uh, so I decided to major in special education to pursue sign language and teaching special special needs children. And I stayed at it for like two years, but I was always auditioning from my Uhuru Sasa days, from my Upward Bound days. I was auditioning in the little theater at Hampton for plays. And I would actually uh, land, you know, key roles. Like I was Benita in A Raisin in the Sun. Nice. And I was Alberta in Sty of the Blind Pig. And so after two years of uh, special education, I decided to change my major to theater arts. It was called speech and drama back then. And I remember telling my mom I was changing my major to speech and drama. And she was like, does that mean you're going to do the news? I mean, speech and drama. (laughs) And I was was like, no, I'm going to be an actress, mother. (laughs) I said in a dramatic uh, fashion with speech. Yes. And so I auditioned for um, a period piece uh, and I didn't make the audition. And the uh, professor who was also directing the play said, do you want to do the costumes? Mm -hmm. 
And there was a little costume shop at Hampton University in the theater department. It was uh, abandoned, basically. The, the teacher who taught costume design moved on. And there was this well-appointed little place that became my learning lab uh, after I agreed to do the costumes for the play. And after that, it just stuck. I realized I could do every character in a production. I didn't have to be one character. I could do a, a character arc and a color palette and discover all the intricacies of all of the characters and how they interact with each other. And I could display my, my vision that way. We are speaking with two-time Oscar winner, Ruth E. Carter from Springfield, four-time Oscar nominee. Yes. <laughs> do you feel like there is any fundamental differences in between costuming for stage and costuming for film? Oh, yes. One of the biggest is the aesthetic distance. Uh, what the eye can capture um, in film is everything is close up. You know, um, I talk about a scene in uh, Ray Liotta's um, Goodfellows or Casino, one of those films, and he's talking to the babysitter and he's really paranoid and kind of uh, all on cocaine and stuff and he's asking her to be a mule and run some drugs somewhere and he's like I'm going to come right back and I don't want you to use the telephone don't use the telephone for any reason he's really paranoid and as soon as he leaves she gets on the phone to tell her mother that she's going to be out of town for a moment but her fingernail polish is chipped and it was such a great little character detail mm. that I think you would not see from the stage. You would not notice that character detail from the stage. And what I love about the stage is uh, that you can um, you can discover a lot of things uh, if you make them bigger and play with uh, uh, the aesthetic distance that... Uh, happens between the eye of the audience and what they see perceive on stage. So, you know, there is like a real clear like color palette and emotional uh, relationship on stage. Uh, and and because uh, uh, stage performances go f continuously from beginning to end, you actually do take the audience on this journey um, through relationship and this larger than life uh, depiction of what things are. So you tell the story in a different way. I had to learn how to make that transition from theater to film because I was still doing things bigger. You know, I want bigger was great. You know, when you think, when you see Malcolm X, you, you see my theatrical side huh. of me. When I was actually thinking jungle school, uh, like like yeah, you see it in like those bigger like bigger color yeah, palettes yeah. and bigger bigger color palettes. You see that, you know, in school days, my first film, you know, where I was able to actually use the story of the HBCUs and, and their their fraternity pledging and create like big costumes and stuff. So it took me a while to really get into the details that uh, film allows you to present. Coming up, how a theater here in Springfield was a pivotal piece in Ruth E. Carter's career trajectory. And we'll hear about her new book and the time she costumed Angela Bassett as Tina Turner right in front of Tina Turner. So cool. And later in the show, Congressman McGovern on why he voted no on the debt ceiling deal yesterday. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM.
Well, before we dive even deeper into your filmography, Ruth E. Carter, the two-time Oscar winner, did you, after Hampton, come back to Springfield and work with City Stage right around the corner from where we are right now? Are they right around the corner? Yeah, yeah. I did. I did. It was called uh, Stage West then. Uh-huh. And I applied for an internship. Uh, they had one of the best internships going because they gave you an apartment across the street. Uh-huh. And uh, they were brand new renovated apartments and you stayed there for free. I, I applied for food stamps uh, because I wasn't making like us. Uh, they gave you a stipend, you know, a weekly stipend that was like 50 bucks or something. But I, I sort of survived like that, and I was there in the theater all day, and then we were running the shows in the evenings and doing a little bit of everything. But I remember my mom coming to see a play, and she had to stick with me uh, after the play was done backstage in the costume shop because I had to kind of sort the laundry and put the laundry in the washing machine and stuff. And my mother said, okay, now you graduated with a four-year degree <laughs> only to come out and do the laundry? I was like, it's not laundry, mother. It's costume. <laughs> I'm going to tell myself that when I do the laundry every weekend. <laughs> you have a new book out called The Art of Ruthie Carter. It looks like a gorgeous coffee table book. And I know that it Thank goes you. through the, uh, the breadth and depth of your career as a costume designer. But you have worked with some of the most incredible names in the business. Um, how much input does a Denzel Washington have on the kind of costume that you, Ruthie Carter, are going to design for him? Or does Angela Bassett have when you're getting ready for, I will say, that I've never had a movie make me cry faster than mm. Wakanda Forever. It used to be up. Disney's picks yeah. are up. But okay. I mean, all of the emotion and heart that went into that first scene of Wakanda Forever. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm getting choked up just thinking about it. But before yes. we get into the passing of Chadwick Boseman, how much does an actor bring to what you're going to then design for them as an actor? Yes. Well, the actors are very uh, much into developing their character and their thought process and how they're going to perform this character. And they're really hoping that you've done your side of it. They're not trying to be costume designers. They're hoping that when they come into my fitting room, that they're going to see a plethora of ideas and directions. And when they adorn one of the pieces that may not even be completely built yet, it could be in a fitting stage, you know, a tailoring stage, but they begin to start to feel the essence of the character that they have imagined that they would play. So we do a collaboration. There's a meeting of the minds. And um, the more work that I do and the more things I can share through what I have discovered in research or you know, in different tribal techniques or, you know, and the, what we share together also helps them build the character. So a lot of people, I've, I've been asked this question a thousand times, <laughs> you know, what if they don't like something and it's, you know, it's just not that black and white. It's more like we discuss how this particular garment needs to work in the scene. And through that, it's not so, you know, I don't like it, mommy, you know. <laughs> I'm sure there are some actors that are like that, but I'm glad that you well, don't yeah. work with too many. <laughs> yeah, well, I don't think I've met them yet, oh, but good. I've heard of them. We won't make you name names. Plus, it's more fun to think that each 
encounter with a character is more of a conversation about what that character is and brings to the screen, both with costume and the actor themselves and the director and all the other people who are trying to bring that character to life. It's just way more enlivened to think of it as breathing life into that character that way. Yes, it is. And you just like you you photograph art pieces and you present these costumes to the director through via photographs. Sometimes they come in and say hello in the middle of a fitting and the actor happens to be adorning something that, you know, you you love too and you're excited about it and excited to show in person but um that conversation continues and you depend on each other to help it grow we're speaking with the two-time oscar winner ruth e carter from springfield and we've talked about malcolm x a real life person that you're then having to costume in a fictionalized version of his life another person who you brought to life on the screen through a biopic just recently passed away, and we were, Kalise and I, both heartbroken moments before we went on the air to hear about the passing of Tina Turner. How hard is it to bring a real-life character's costuming to life in that way? And did you have any interaction with the actual Tina Turner through the oh, making yes. of What's Love Got to Do With It? Well, you know, I was very early on in my career. Um, I remember I was nominated for Malcolm X, uh, while I was working on Tina Turner, and the nominations are announced very early in the morning, like 5 a.m., and I had heard through a friend who called me and said, hey, you did it, and I, I woke up, and I was like, did what? And they were like, you got nominated, and I was like, really? I went to work that morning, because, you know, our days start super early, you know, 5.36 a.m. calls, and I uh, pull into the base camp and I see one of the producers and I go, hey, uh, I got to tell you something. Uh, I got nominated this morning, but don't tell anyone. (laughs) (laughs) I really didn't know how to unpack it. It was my first nomination. I just didn't know what to do with it. And he looked at me with his eyes big and he said, okay. And that day, Tina Turner came to set. Um, Wow. She was very excited about Angela wearing a dress from her What's Love Got to Do With It tour. It's a leather mini dress. And um, I had met her a couple of weeks before that, and she'd asked me to make this dress, and she'd shown me the CD cover. You know, people don't even use CDs anymore. (laughs) She didn't show me the link. She showed me the CD cover. (laughs) And uh, she, you know, saw me and I said, you know, I'd be right there to Angela's trailer with the dress. And she was holding the wig she wore on the What's Love Got to Do. You know how she had that feathery Mm -hmm. hair. Classic. And so I, you know, ran into our costume trailer. I grabbed the dress. I raced over to Angela's trailer. When I opened the door, Angela was sitting cross leg on the floor with uh, Tina sitting on the couch over her and she was plaiting her hair, getting her ready for the wig. And I just remember standing there for like a millisecond and thinking, you know, there was no camera phones or anything. <laughs> do, I was thinking, do I run back and get my Polaroid camera? But I didn't. And it's one of my cherished memories of meeting her because I saw her passing the crown, you know, and now Angela is an iconic actress, you know, and needless to say, when we went to set, like the whole set 
burst out in applause for the nomination. So, so my friend producer told everybody. <laughs> <laughs> and now you know who not to tell your secrets to. Yeah. <laughs> yes, that's the last time. <laughs> We are speaking with Ruth E. Carter, the two-time Oscar winner for costume design for Black Panther and Wakanda Forever, originally from Springfield, Mass. So you've mm-hmm. worked in all sorts of different genres, like Afrofuturism with Black Panther, with like HBCUs, with School Days and, and others, and even with Space Cowboys in Serenity. Like, what is your favorite style of of costume to to work with? Like, do you have a favorite style that you love to bring to screen? Well, I love, um, I love the period piece. Uh, and we approached Wakanda Forever and Black Panther like it was a period piece because mm. I had to do the same amount of research. So I love the challenge of discovering not only the surface of what things looked like in the 20s or the 50s or the 60s, but also like the texture and the tone, the socioeconomics, the struggle, the strife, the, the wealth, the, the grandeur, the, the sadness, the happiness. I love to uh, figure out how that looks as you wear it. How do you wear your personality? How do you wear your neighborhood? How does your neighborhood look? as a collection of people uh, from this neighborhood, you know? And uh, when I was researching Malcolm X, I went to the Schomburg and I looked at so many images of blacks in the forties in Harlem and really wanted to immerse myself into, you know, the tone and the color. And so there's lots of layers to creating period piece or also to creating a futuristic piece those layers you never stop in any one place there's always something new to learn and discover um, about the time so I don't you know look at any one era as a favorite Mm -hmm. I look at the journey collectively as you know something that's challenging to me and I like to be challenged Coming up, how the writer's strike impacts a Hollywood costume designer and the powerful story behind the creation of the funeral scene in Wakanda Forever that made us all cry a lot. More with Springfield's Oscar winner Ruth E. Carter on the way and later McGoverning with McGovern on why he voted no on the debt ceiling deal. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. The Fabulous 413 podcast is funded by Northeast Solar, offering solar options, energy security, and solutions for the local community. Learn more at northeast-solar.com. We are speaking with two-time Oscar winner Ruth E. Carter from Springfield, four-time Oscar nominee. One thing that was so striking about your costume design that you won an Oscar for, for Wakanda Forever, is, as I mentioned, the very opening of Wakanda Forever, you know, when the Marvel title comes up, I'm getting choked up just thinking about it right now, and the passing of Chadwick Boseman, and then you're, you're launched into a funeral, but the colors are not what one might expect from a typical U.S. funeral, at least in certain cultures. So there we go. Tell me about what influenced that particular scene in the costume design, which really mm-hmm. I knew immediately when I saw that. 
she's going to get yeah. nominated for an Oscar oh, for this. Wonderful. Uh, you know, one of the big things that is very important for us to do when we are recreating worlds is to talk to historians. And we had historians who specialized in West Africa and um, some of the, they told us that some of the society, African societies were either all white for funerals or all red. So we chose the white. We wanted it to feel like it was pure white, you know, not a lot of beiges and tans, but, you know, pure white. And um, there's usually a smaller intimate funeral and then a big celebration. What was really challenging about that scene was when you think of African uh, traditional fabrics, you think of it's colorful and as you were mentioning, you know, the Ankara fabrics are always like lots of patterns that are combined together with lots of color. And you can only find so much of uh, tonal looks in white. And so we had to silkscreen uh, many of the patterns of the Zulu tribe, the Indibele, the Turkana. We'd wrap the turbans to feel like the Tuareg and the actual made up tribes that we're inspired by. So it was challenging to do. There was a big process of fitting everyone and, you know, telling their story. And some uh, Afrofuturistic ideas were basic, you know, uh, simple tunics and, and pants. But hopefully in the extras one day, we'll see that whole procession because it was magnificent to see them uh, grouped together. So you saw the Zulu coming through with their headpieces of the fur and the and then you saw the Tuareg coming through and it's a whole group of men and women that are turbans and, and big earrings and really was amazing to see in person. I was imagining myself being there during the filming of this, knowing that the actual Chadwick Boseman had passed away. Yes. And so well, what Hannah, did the mood feel that way while that scene was, was being actually filmed? Yes. Hannah Beekler, who was our production designer, she surprised us all with this mural of Chadwick. And we had drummers drumming by the mural. And to see the sea of people who were celebrating it's, it's like they knew we were celebrating Chadwick, you know, as well as we were opening the film with King T'Challa's funeral. It was both. And Hannah and I just hugged and cried. And it was really so, so beautiful. Even the, the uh, Sacred Grove, the Sacred Grove where the intimate funeral was and we had the Dora Milaje with the one shoulder, one arm exposed, and that exposed arm was the side that was carrying the casket. And it had so much beauty. They looked like monks. They were bald, and they had this drape. And, and it was very, very gentle and beautiful just to, to be there. We, you know, we had to... You know, we had deadlines and, you know, there was a lot going on that day. It had rained the day before and I had everyone in white. And so I was insisting on this wooden planks, you know, everywhere so they could walk, <laughs> not get muddy. And, you know, so I have to do the laundry you know, again. <laughs> yeah. So in the midst of all of the chaos, you had a moment when the, the camera rolled 
and you realize that you were actually having your own funeral for your friend. Hmm. This is a, a bit of a segue because, like, that was amazing and I kind of need a moment. But yeah. <laughs> um, so we're in the middle of a writer's strike. Does that have a lot of bearing on the work that you're in the middle of? Like, you're in, in production for, for Blade and some other movies. Like, what effect does that have trickling down to where, where you are in production? The whole process of filmmaking and television is is integral to the collaboration from all parties and especially including the writers. Things are tweaked all the way through, scenes are rewritten, jokes are retold. Uh, you know, one day it's a giraffe, the next day it's an elephant. I mean, it's really even hard for us to keep up because all of a sudden there's new pages. Um, and this is just a part of our reality that a scene will get rewritten so that it's better. And we really do depend on the film being produced and, and, and making money. That's This is an entertainment industry and it's, it's you know, harnessed on writers who know how to craft the dialogue that will take us in two hours or less um, to the end of the story, to the resolution. And we forget that. We think that we just take a script and that's it. And we produce that and we don't need anything, any other words, you know, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. <laughs> this is it. These but are the words. They'll never change. We don't ever change them. <laughs> so it has an effect. It has an effect on the whole industry. I think now that we've changed a little bit from COVID where we're streaming more. I know I binge watch more than I ever have. Mm. And they deserve to be a part of whatever they're asking for. We're speaking with Ruth E. Carter, the two-time Oscar winner, the only black woman who has won two Oscars so far, both for the same category, costume design, who is from Springfield, Massachusetts. And I know it was a hard time to accept that second Oscar because your mother, who you've mentioned so many times in this conversation, passed away at age 101. We're in the, in the midst of her passing. Were you able to come back to your hometown? Oh, yeah. I had a great relationship with my mother at her final years, and it was a different relationship. And every time, um, there are different phases of our mother-daughter relationship, and this was a phase that I cherish um, because I got to see that, you know, she did have a sense of who I was and that, you know, I remember putting like some vitamin C serum on my face in front of her. And she said, what's that? And I said, it's vitamin C serum. And she was like, put some on my face. Mm. And, you know, those are little tidbits of things that you were cherished for the rest of your life. What are some things about Springfield that made you the woman that you are today? I was supported by my community. I was supported by my family. Springfield wasn't so big uh, that, you know, I could um, be free, you know, to be me. And I could also get to New York on a church trip, church bus trip, and see, 
for color girls see uh, mama i want to sing go see the whiz and mm -hmm. and get back on that bus and be home by midnight um <laughs> you know my uh, i i was a boys and girls club kid i was a girl scout you know i went to glickman i went to van sickle i went to tech high and all along that journey, I remember times when I was supported during either uh, Black History Month or I remember being in plays at Van Sickle and, and at Tech. I used to sketch um, high school yearbook pictures for, of my friends and give it to them. And so I just felt like Springfield was a place where I was actually f free to flourish. Oh, that's so great. <laughs> Were there things from Springfield that also that you think influenced your work also? Sure. Well, I was Miss Black Harambe, I think 1980. You have all these accolades and you yeah. just like roll them off. And it's like, oh, well, I did this. <laughs> like, my goodness, your CV is ginormous. Put the Oscars aside for a moment. <laughs> right. Yeah, let's talk about Miss Black Harambe. There we go. <laughs> but I was already in college. Uh, I was like a freshman or a junior in college. And um, I think that... That experience alone, you know, started to make me feel like I could actually be something greater than my ideas about what I wanted to be. Because, you know, when you win the queen's crown and you're in the paper, <laughs> you know, that was a big deal. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I still have those trophies. And I'm still really proud of them. Ruth E. Carter from Springfield, the two-time Oscar award winner, four-time Oscar nominee, has a new book out called The Art of Ruth E. Carter. So lovely to talk to you today. So glad to bring Thank you back you. to the airwaves of your hometown and so wonderful to hear your stories. Thank you so uh, much. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been great. Oh, no, it's been awesome. It's been an honor. I seriously could just like sit and like chat with you all day. <laughs> <laughs> me too. Uh, she is the coolest. So cool, in fact, that at the end of the month on June 24th, she'll be honored at the Pink Magnolia Gala presented by Community Enrichment Incorporated. The event itself is raising funds for programming and scholarships in the greater Springfield area. And more details on that we'll post on our podcast page. Up next, the murky waters of governance as we McGovern with Representative Jim McGovern. You're listening to The Fabulous 413 on NEPM. Woo! Did you hear our chat from last week where I had to recreate it using AI because <laughs> the audio corrupted? Oh. <laughs> Is there anything that can assist these small farmers in Western Mass now? There were existing programs and I'm not. I'm not sure you know whether these farms have reached out to USDA yet or not. We never sounded uh, smarter in our entire life or more beautiful. Uh, good. Well, yeah. All the pertinent information was put out there just in AI form. It do dovetailed nicely into our conversation from the week before about how <laughs> a AI was going to replace us. <laughs> <laughs> Time for our weekly check-in with U.S. Congressman from the 2nd Congressional District of Massachusetts and the ranking member of the Rules Committee, Congressman Jim McGovern, although we get a double shot of Congressman McGovern this week because you'll be part of the Asparagus Festival broadcast. Mm -hmm. We will be recording a show live from the Asparagus Festival on Saturday that you can all hear on Monday. And 
get your asparagus and agricultural-related questions ready for the congressman for that show this weekend. But a late night last night for the House of Representatives, this from the New York Times, the U.S. House passed legislation Wednesday night to raise the government debt ceiling and set federal spending limits, breaking a stalemate that brought the nation within days of its first default in history. The yeas were 314 and the nays we're 117, so it was a clear mandate in the House, but you and Congresswoman Ayanna Presley, also from the Massachusetts delegation, voted nay. In your opinion, what was bad about this bill? My view is that no deal should ever compromise the needs of the most vulnerable in our society. And I'm grateful to President Biden for making this awful bill less awful. But in the final analysis, there were, in my opinion, there were just too many people left unprotected. This was not a fair deal by any measure. It went after the most vulnerable in our society to balance the budget. Uh, It's going to end up throwing hundreds of thousands of people off a snap, mostly between the ages of 50 and 54. I don't think that that's fair. And all the Trump tax cuts stayed in place. All the corporate tax loopholes stayed in place untouched. Defense spending went up by 3%. None of the taxpayer-funded subsidies for big oil were on the table. All the focus was on programs, cutting programs that actually help people. And, you know, I don't know if you saw 60 Minutes a couple of weeks ago. They they had a former Defense Department official talk about the unbelievable cost overruns on everything there. He talked about paying $10,000 for like a $200 oil switch. And, you know, this is commonplace. And yet we're told we can't find a penny of savings in the bloated military budget. I mean, give me a break. Now, there, and there are so, some Republicans, yeah. though, that are saying that Biden outsmarted them, that they, the Republicans didn't get nearly what they wanted, that this, in regards to SNAP, it exempts homeless, it exempts veterans, it exempts those who are aging out of foster care, all things that we've talked about on this show as being important right. to you. And the White House seems to be claiming that it will keep the same number of people on SNAP. Is that your assessment of, of what's actually gone on right. here? Did, did, uh, did Biden actually pull a fast one on the GOP somehow with this? Well, I give Biden credit because he made this awful bill less awful. Mm-hmm. But on the exemptions, um, I, you know, and this is one of the this is why the details matter. Some of these populations are hard to identify. So it's easy to be able to the government has data on your age. It's easy to plug that in. Some of this other stuff is going to be challenging. It's going to require expanded SNAP education. It's going to require, you know, more funding for states to be able to figure out how to comply with all this. So it's good. But let's not believe that this is, you know, a fait accompli that it's going to be easy. But the other issue is that we know at least 750,000 uh, new people in ages between 50 and 54 will lose their benefit. That's a lot. So President Biden deserves incredible credit for to make this not as bad. But in my opinion, it is still bad. And for my right wing Republicans, there was never going to be a deal mean enough for them. You know, they want to just dismantle everything. I have respect for those who voted for the package, uh, thinking that you know, this is the way we should proceed at this late date. But uh, I, again, there's a, there's an inherent unfairness here that you know we're, we're, we're just getting used to accepting. Every time we have a deal, it's like screw four people and we exempt all rich people. It's we can't touch the military budget, but we need to go after programs like SNAP and WIC. There's also some really nasty anti-environmental stuff in in this bill, issues around student loans. I mean, so there's a lot here. To me, it would have been better if we went back to the Rules Committee and we made a few changes. That didn't happen. But I didn't feel comfortable endorsing this. 
And so that's why I voted the way I did. So Now it seems like the New York Times is saying that this is only phase one of what may happen, that there is another debt limit discussion that will have to happen before the end of next April. And if that debt limit doesn't get increased, then there will be automatic cuts to the military budget is that so this is well and so this i guess brings us to a question that david kaufman wrote in uh, from amherst to ask you saying why didn't congress follow secretary yellen's recommendation after the november elections and raise or eliminate the debt ceiling while you had the majority before the new congress was sworn in that would have avoided this whole crisis and you'd think you could get some republicans to support an idea like that the idea that the budget is where we decide what we're going to spend on what and how much and the debt ceiling should have nothing to do with it. That's just us saying we will pay our debts. Why didn't that happen? Well, two things. First of all, if anybody believes that we will ever cut the military budget, you know, I'm willing to bet you that we will not. All right. So they will find a way around that. And secondly, Jenny Yellen was right. I urged that we do that. I mean, I was told by that the Senate couldn't get 60 votes to be able to eliminate the debt ceiling. I mean, that was the problem. I mean, we, need, we had the majority in the House. We needed 60 votes in the Senate. And as part of the overall omnibus bill that we passed at the end of the session, the Republicans, Mitch McConnell namely, was saying, we, we will not go along with that. Schumer didn't push it. I wish he did. And we need to you know, look to the future as a way to eliminate it. My fear is that we're now, we've set a, a precedent, the Republicans have set a precedent, where you can get things done you know, into law that are unpopular, that you can't possibly move through regular order by trying to get an extortion deal, if you will, over the debt ceiling. And so it'll be tempting if there's a situation, you know, where Democrats have control of the House and a Republican president to kind of repeat this and Republicans to try to do this if we have a Democratic president again. I think we need to resist that, but I'm telling you, this is a precedent. And if Republicans think it's okay to do, well, you know, they'll do it again and maybe Democrats will follow. Ironically, Trump, when he was president, we raised the debt ceiling three times. And Trump, if you Google and you can find his quote, said something along the lines was, this is sacrosanct. We shouldn't ever play around with the debt ceiling. We just raise it. This is about paying our bills. Now that he's no longer president, he's like, you know, it's different because right. I'm no longer president. But what so, seems I mean, to be, I mean, there seems to be this particular bill made it clear that it alienated both the far right and you and others on the far left who didn't right. want to vote for this. But there's a big majority in the middle who sees the sense in having to come up with some idea. So if the Republicans yep. don't want the Democrats to take the debt ceiling hostage in the future and vice versa, is there a right now a, a place where you could come together and say, hey, let's not do this to each other anymore or to the American people, frankly. Let's pass a bill now that will make sure we don't ever do this again. Yeah, I think that for the majority of Republicans in the House, they think they got a deal that favors their priorities. They got enormous cuts and they were able to layer on additional work requirements for vulnerable people ages 50 to 54. So for the majority of Republicans, they see this as, well, it works for us. Mm-hmm. And it maybe didn't work as much as they wanted it to, but they got a lot of what they wanted. And by the way, the people who are paying for this are the people who least can afford it. And that at the end of the day, if you want to have a, a budget deal, I'm willing to compromise and give and take, but you need to tell me you know, multi-millionaires and corporations who got all these tax breaks, we can't like shave a little of that tax break off or that we can't say, you know, we, we can't subsidize fossil fuels and big oil companies that the rate we're doing or, you know, or maybe we, we can't look at the military budget and, again, at least figure out a way to find savings in terms of cost overruns. I mean, none of that 
None of that. None of that is was on the table. And, and it should have been because this was all about discretionary funding. Military spending is over 50% of our discretionary budget. The idea that we couldn't even take a look at that, but no, but it's okay to go after poor people. And then we'll say we have a victory because we're only throwing 750,000 people off and we may be covering some additional people who might have been thrown off, but you know, we're, we're going to see whether we can maybe not throw them off. That's not a fair deal. And again, I said my Democratic colleagues who voted for this thing, they did it because they thought this was the best we could get. But I didn't come to Congress to hurt people. Mm-hmm. I just didn't. Uh, and so I'm not going to go along to get along. And I concluded that the vote that I cast was the appropriate vote. It reflects my values. I think it reflects the values of the majority of people I represent in, in, the, in my district. Speaking with U.S. congressmen from the 2nd Congressional District of Massachusetts, that's the district. Today is the first day of Pride Month in most places. Northampton gets an early jump on it in May. But uh, turning to the global stage with a local twist, news out of Uganda. This from NPR. A new anti-gay law in Uganda calls for life in prison for those who are convicted. A bill said to have been inspired by... Western Mass's native Scott Lively, who's from Shelburne Falls, which is now part of your district. He had a church in Springfield. Being that this is the beginning of Pride Month, your take on what the U.S. response should be to what's going on in Uganda with this bill that um, doesn't go as far as uh, it had once, perhaps, where there was a call for the death penalty. I don't believe that's still part of the bill, but prison for people who are convicted of being homosexuals. What should the U.S. response be? Well, first of all, it's sick. And it's sick that much of what is happening there was inspired by people from the United States. And, and I think the response to the United States ought to be, is, you know what, we actually provide Uganda a generous aid package. And we ought to refashion that aid package so that we're supporting things that do not go through the Ugandan government. We can support food relief uh, efforts and humanitarian efforts, but we shouldn't be giving direct assistance to a government uh, that is so blatantly prejudiced and um, homophobic. I mean, we have to set an example, uh, and there ought to be standards, and we can't just look the other way. And we also ought to figure out a way to crack down on funding that comes from the United States, from some of these intolerant uh, right-wing organizations that promote this kind of stuff around the world. But it it, it, it just it, it's very sad. It's very sick, and you know, and there ought to be a significant. U.S. response. Uh, You've got two opportunities this Saturday to talk with U.S. Congressman Jim McGovern. One is coffee with the congressman at the Bangs Community Center in Amherst at 9 a.m. And then we'll be at the Asparagus Festival. We'll be taping the Fabulous 413 live on stage. We're going to keep it mostly agriculturally focused as we'll be there with the U.S. congressman who'll be part of the negotiations of the Farm Bill and sits on all sorts of um, agricultural committees as well as the new commissioner of the Mass Department of Agricultural Resources from the 413 originally, Ashley Randall, and Scott Soares from the USDA, who handles rural affairs for parts of uh, New England. Now, Congressman, it is an asparagus festival. Are you a fan of asparagus? I love asparagus. Favorite way to yeah. uh, consume asparagus? I love grilled asparagus Me uh, too. on the grill with a little bit of olive oil and salt and pepper and maybe a little some of the, uh, the flaming hot uh, red pepper uh, chips. Yeah, yeah, so I'm a big. I love asparagus. The only thing, you know, over the years of of, of going to the asparagus festival, I, one year I went, I had asparagus ice cream. Yeah, which didn't do much for me. Yeah, that's a bridge but too every, far I, for me. I, I get it, but yeah. I'm like, why? <laughs> but <laughs> right, but all the other asparagus dishes I love, and there's something about asparagus from happy from Western Massachusetts that is uh, so special, and, and to me, it tastes better than asparagus from any place else in the in the country. 
Well, we'll get to taste some on Saturday. We appreciate you being part of that uh, on Saturday. And if you're not able to come to the festival, because maybe you're at Springfield Pride or something on Saturday, you'll be able to hear what we talk about uh, on Monday's show. Thanks as always, Congressman, and we'll talk to you again next week. All the best. Be safe. We did mention earlier in the show that it's June 1st, so it is Pride Month, and I am a bad bisexual and forgot that this weekend is a lot of Pride events, actually. Some have been doing stuff leading up to this weekend, in fact, starting with Springfield Pride, which you mentioned at the end of that talking with Jim McGovern. It started today with the flag raising. There is a uh, community event happening with counselors and business people tomorrow at Stick, and then the real parade happens on Saturday, starts at Stick, walks to Stern Square, is going to be a giant pile of fun. There's a gala tonight at MGM, but I think you're a little bit late for that. Well, you know, maybe you can still make it over there, depending you on when you're to listening to this. Yes, and we are also remiss that we didn't spend much time focusing on what's going on for Pride in the Berkshires starting this week. And we will be talking about other Pride events in the area throughout the course of the month. But yes. even tonight... 8 o'clock, Pride Night at Methuselah Bar and Lounge in Pittsfield. Tomorrow night, downtown Pittsfield Pride Art Walk through downtown Pittsfield at 7.30. The Majesty of Berkshire's Drag Pageant happening at the Adams Theater tomorrow night. And then Saturday is also the Berkshire Pride Festival uh, throughout the course of the day. Quick reminder that if you're going to any of the drag shows, don't forget to bring your ones. Stop by your bank beforehand. Yeah, that's a good idea. (laughs) Do they give you ones? The bank has to be open. Sometimes they give you ones, but sometimes they run out. So it's just better to bring your own. And you can definitely make a lot of these events and the Asparagus Festival it's true. on Saturday, where we will be taping. We'll be, we won't be broadcasting live. It's like a test. Yes. We're going to see if we are able to broadcast live. We're going to tape it, and then we'll bring you all those conversations. Because we want to do more live stuff. Monday on the show. Yeah, we may have a bunch of fun stuff that you can even participate in coming up in the next few weeks and Ooh, months hey. here in the fabulous 413. But Secrets and cool things. Yeah, tomorrow in the fabulous 413, it's the soon-to-be renamed wine thunderdome with michael quinlan from table and vine in west springfield and we continue our month of firsts and taste two wines from the same vineyard damani gordon joins us to talk all things ramsey lewis and a tribute show genuine culture is presenting saturday at gateway city arts in holyoke and we'll have live music friday with 413 transplant from the midwest jeffrey folk cult he's got a new album a new residency and a show this weekend at the egremont barn in Egremont in the Berkshires. And we still want to know what your favorite or least favorite asparagus recipe is. Send us an email or voice memo at thefab413 at nepm.org or text us. 1-800-639-9120. Our director is Tony. Upsetting car troubles done. Our our engineer. Our engineer is Betsy. Meet me in the parking lot, Lengto. Our technical team is Bart. Oh, yeah, somebody does sit here ranking. Kara, just pick something else, Foster, and punk Rude Boy Dubay. Thanks to Spouse, Happy Valley Guitar Orchestra, Ludwig Goransson, Baba Mal, Public Enemy, Kendrick Lamar, and SZA, Jay Giles Band, and Tina Turner. See you tomorrow.